This episode and all of our Sundance coverage is brought to you by the all-new VideoMic Pro Plus from Rode Microphones, the ultimate on-camera shotgun microphone, and by DaVinci Resolve and the Ursa Mini Pro from Blackmagic Design. Originally designed for Hollywood's elite colorists, DaVinci Resolve has been used on more feature films and TV shows than anything else because it lets you create images that are simply impossible with other tools. The latest release of Resolve now incorporates full, non-linear editor functionality and fully featured Fairlight audio, integrated directly with color tools to provide a comprehensive and complete pipeline for finishing. Recently introduced and making an impact around the industry for its high-quality and flexible form factor, the Ursa Mini Pro Professional Digital Camera combines incredible image quality with the features of a traditional broadcast camera. Ergonomically designed controls on the side of the camera allow you to adjust most settings by feel and without ever having to take your eyes off the action. Ursa Mini Pro also features built-in ND filters, a status display, and a revolutionary new interchangeable lens mount that lets you change between EF photographic lenses, or PL, B4, and F mount lenses. Ursa Mini Pro is lightweight and comfortable enough to use all day, has controls that are extremely fast to use, and image quality that's far superior to broadcast cameras costing 10 times more. That's the Ursa Mini Pro Professional Digital Cinema Camera from Blackmagic Design. This is Oakley Anderson Moore, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. Can you imagine being pepper sprayed, bombarded with rubber bullets, or hit with water cannons while still managing to hold on to your camera and record? That's what filmmaker Cody Lusich took on for eight months to document the Standing Rock protests of the North Dakota Access Pipeline. Using a stylized approach that includes slow motion portraits and epic drone footage, Lusage creates the only native-made feature about Standing Rock and paints a picture of an unfolding movement that's at times messy and agonizing, as well as inspiring. I was able to see the first cut screening of Akichita, The Battle of Standing Rock at Sundance and sat down with Lusage and producer Ginger Shankar to talk about the process of making their feature. If you've ever wondered what it takes to film an uprising of civil disobedience in the face of a militarized police force, this conversation will put you right in the middle of one. This is Oakley and I'm sitting down with Ginger Shankar and Cody Lusage, who are the producer and the director respectively of a brand new film at Sundance called Akichita, The Battle of Standing Rock. Thank you guys so much for sitting down and talking with us today. Good to be here, thanks. Um, just so people can know who you are, introduce yourself and 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 tell us the one thing I'd like to start with is how did you end up becoming involved in this project and and you know how did you, how did you find yourself at Standing Rock to begin with so uh this is Ginger Shankar I'm the producer of the Kichita I actually found myself involved with the project in kind of a funny way so I'd gone out to Standing Rock in November and December twice with a friend and was kind of blown away with what was going on because I think I'm an educated person and going to somewhere like that where you see people stripped of their basic rights was very, very eye-opening. Because, you you know, I'd heard, of course, I'm aware of the civil rights movement, and my family have been freedom fighters in India for years and years, and seeing what was going on in the ground just was really, really infuriating and upsetting to me. So I was already kind of feeling that, and then I met Cody at Sundance in January of last year, and somebody told me that he was working on the film, and I told him, I said, look, I was there, whatever you need, 
I want to help, you know, I will give you music, whatever I can help with. And about a week after Sundance, I went back out there because I had met Cody and a bunch of the water protectors that were kind of on the front lines over there and just wanted to help and had no idea, just kind of like landed on the ground and ended up getting involved with the production because Cody was out there. He was a one man show. He was basically shooting. He was flying a drone and he was making this movie by himself. And I got there and I'm like, how the hell are you doing this? Like every day, I mean, crazy things to like, Five drones were shot down, you know, with all the surveillance going on out there. He never backed up his hard drive. So, like, he would bury his hard drive in his Uh teepee, which, like, horrified me later. I'm like, wait, so the film is on one hard drive in the back of the, like, multiple. No, no, it was, like, like three or four hard drives, like, four terabyte hard drives. The man man was on a mission, and the fact that he was, like, fighting on the front lines, I mean, he was maced and tear-gassed, all these things, and was so hell-bent on making this film to show what was going on. And like for him, he's native, he grew up in the community and it's an extraordinary film. And it's like just seeing what he was going through and what they were going through and what they were fighting, it was sort of a no brainer to like help him no matter what he needed to sort of get it done. Yeah, so C- Cody, how did you find yourself there to begin with? So I ended up out in North Dakota working on another production and it was my first time ever going to North Dakota, and on the day that we wrapped, um, I had I had I had heard about what was going on over at Standing Rock, so I I basically just said drop me off over there, and I had my camera and I had my laptop, and I had a few cousins that were there and some friends that were already there in camp, so I just kind of fell right into camp, and um, you know I just wanted to I wanted to fight, and I wanted to release weekly clips to help spread the message and get the word out. Um, and so that was kind of what I was doing. I was I was there for the first week, and I shot a couple of videos and was st- starting to edit them. And about at that time, um, Sundance and both uh, Sundance and the Redford Center had reached out to me and asked me if uh, if I had heard anything about Standing Rock and if I knew anybody that was out there. And I said, well, actually, I'm actually here right now. And they were like, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm out here fighting. I'm, I'm doing these little clips. And they're like, well, can we can we see some of the clips? So I said, sure. So I sent them to them, and they were like, wow, these are great. Can we blast these across our network? And I said, hell yeah. And so they did, and we got, like, millions of views overnight. And it, it, it was, like, some of the first videos actually come out of Standing Rock that actually <clears throat> got millions of, of uh, views. And so a little bit of time went by, a few days or a week or something, and then both of them came, came up back to me and, and, and asked me if uh, I wanted to do a feature-length documentary out there. <clears throat> and I said no, because I wanted to do these little clips, and I wanted to fight, and I knew that if I was locked down to a feature-length documentary, I wouldn't be able to release any, any of that footage. So that was a, that was a big problem for me, um, because I wanted to get the word out and spread awareness. So after a couple of weeks went by, um, and all of, these, all of these non-native filmmakers started flocking there. I mean, there must have been at least 50 other filmmakers there. Huh. And... Um, just showed up with cameras. Yeah, and so and 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 Sundance and Redford were were both writing me saying like you know we want to make sure there's at least one native crew on the ground that's telling the story from the inside perspective. So once I started seeing all those non-native filmmakers flocking there, and I was like, oh man, this is this is actually a really big responsibility. Somebody has to do this, and I knew it would take at least the next year and a half of my life and flip it upside down and. Uh, so I, I ended up just caving in. I, I just sort of came to the conclusion that, that the film that comes out a year and a half later will probably be as important or more important than those little clips that I would have released through, through that time of the, occupa- the occupation. 
And so, so much of the film, the feature film that you eventually piece together, you know, you, one interesting thing is that you get to hear directly from the water protectors, some of the people who are there on the front lines with this sort of civil disobedience to try and stop the pipeline. How did you, you know, meet them and how did you get them to talk to you? Because it's, you know, such a balanced thing because, you know, they want to tell their story, but it's also like uh, partly trying to protect them, keep their privacy. How did you meet them and win and win over their trust? So that was that was won over by by um, hard work and uh, and sacrifice um, on the front line. Get get maced, get shot, get tear gassed. Um, put a put a couple little videos out. Um, yeah, that that was that was sort of earned by being out on the front line with them, and and, and over a time that was that was that, that was earned. You know, when they see me help build a barricade or help go set something on fire or you know. So once you you know took some mace to the face, <laughs> it's kind of like that was some cred that you then. Sure, I mean, yeah, yeah, you end up getting cred, yeah, if you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, had you did you have any experience before this? filming in I want to say like a war zone because even though you're doing civil disobedience in a peaceful on one side there's a very militarized police force on the other side and like you said there's mace and rubber bullets and water cannons so is this kind of an environment that you had shot in before so so I had actually um I used to do hood DVDs back in Los Angeles in East LA and Watts and in Compton primarily the Jordan Downs projects and we did a we did a weekly DVD magazine there called Real Talk and yeah, we used to the set, the set used to get shot up sometimes, and that was that was that, that was filming in in, in in definite war zones, and that was you know I did that for a couple of years. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really do that anymore. <laughs> so what kind of skill set do you need? I mean, especially like people thinking like listening to this, and then they're like, I know something I need to get to in film, but like I don't know how to how to behave as a filmmaker in the situation where there's there's all this risk. Like, what skill set do you need? Would you go into that kind of environment? You know, do you have, do you have to steal yourself mentally, or you, technically, are there things you have to keep in mind? Like, how, what's it like? Um, you just, I mean, I don't know. I think I think common sense sort of takes over, and and hopefully you have some sort of common sense, and you can feel the area and what's going on around you. I mean, there was definite times where like the hair on my back stood up, and it didn't feel right. And it was like something wasn't right. Like you better get off of this front line right now. Don't turn your back to them. Like there was definite feelings in, in certain times, where I knew something could happen or it wasn't safe. You just you could just feel it. And so I would step off the front line a little bit, maybe go back around the side for a second until it felt right again to go back in. But um, I don't know. I don't know how to how to explain that. Um, it's just something that you just feel, and you, you need to go into these situations feeling that you need to pray first. You need to smudge yourself with sage. You know, you need to have a have a have a clear head, so that you can feel your surroundings. And so, technically, I mean, from like your gear perspective, because one thing as a filmmaker, I'm watching this film. I'm like, what is he? How is he getting the shot? And like, can you talk to us about sort of like the tools you use, and like how are you able to use those with all of this stuff going on? <clears throat> so I use the Sony A7S camera. And that's a very versatile camera. It's very small. Um, it's not like a big shoulder rig camera. So I was just holding it like literally like handheld. Um, and you know that that also kind of keeps you off the radar a little bit too. You don't have this 
big old camera, like, you know, and I have the strap so I hang around my side. It would be inside of my jacket most of the time. So I could pull it out real quick and then put it back, you know? So that was that was kinda nice. Um I mean that that camera had gotten maced and tear gassed and hit with rubber bullets and like dropped and landed <laughs> in the water. I mean it was like by the time I, I had left from there, it was caked with all this white and pink like poisons, like and that thing lasted through the whole thing. Like it was really good. Um However, when shooting with the DSLR camera without a shoulder rig or some sort of steady cam rig, um, it's going to be super shaky. And that's just a factor that we had to deal with. And so when I was out on the front lines, um, especially because bullets are whizzing by and you're running around and, you know, it's really hard to get steady shots when you're there. So what I would do is I would, I would shoot everything in slow motion. And so all that crazy movement and stuff going on, once you slow it down to slow motion, if you shoot it at 60 frames per second or 120 frames per second, as soon as you put it in post and slow-mo, all of a sudden, those shots that would have been so janky that you couldn't even watch it are just smooth and beautiful. So that was that's a little something I did. I haven't really shared that too much. Yeah, that's interesting. And it kind of lends itself to the whole visual style of the film, mm -hmm. which I feel like is very expressive in a way that sometimes with documentary you're just trying to shoot something just to capture it but i mean even that choice which is like both practical but also lends itself creatively it's, it's very stylistic and i actually did it on purpose too <laughs> <laughs> yeah i like to be able to speed things up and slow them down especially when it's like an action sequence yeah of course yeah. if you're shooting at like 60 or 120 you're probably using your card space up a little faster which is probably why you had all those hard drives on your tv <laughs> yeah a little faster but were you concerned at some point you know, about getting any of your footage confiscated. Sure. That was why I had to dig a hole in my teepee and stash, <laughs> stash, stash my hard drives there because I couldn't take them with me whenever I would go anywhere because if I get pulled over or targeted and they take those hard drives, man, that's, that would have been it. Yeah, it's it was so interesting in the film because one thing that we got to see was not just what you were filming, but there was also some footage, you know, speaking of, confiscation and security and being targeted <laughs> there was you know there are private security members from the energy transfer side who were kind of infiltrating the camps the Correct. protest camp and mm -hmm. they came with cameras and they used that to their advantage can you speak to that whole part of it because it's just kind of interesting it's like so we've got this, this powerful was, tool this was so, uh, so security culture so when people are out of one of our actions and we don't know them and they're not from camp we never seen them at camp um, and they're there filming, automatically we're like, who is that? Who are you? Where are you from? What's your name? Who do you know here? And there were certain people who really re regulated that. And I mean, that wasn't the only footage that we had obtained. You know, there was a lot of other cameras that were obtained throughout the occupation when outsiders would come in and we'd end up smelling them out, fishing them out, you know? And, you know, like, can you explain, especially for people who haven't seen the film, like, what they were u trying to film and use that footage for? So I think they were, of, of course, trying to film us if we were damaging any of the property uh, for, uh, on the pipeline or damaging the pipeline or their, their um, construction vehicles, you know. Because um, in theory, if they caught that on camera, they could use that like, totally. in a court of law or to get a, a warrant. Or... Yeah, for sure. I mean, we were under 24-hour surveillance. They had helicopters around camp 24-7 for like the first three and a half, four months. It never stopped. There was an airplane and a, and, a, 
helicopter and they were always up on the hill with their big cameras. So we were under surveillance 24-7. Like they were watching everybody. It's like such an interesting kind of dichotomy because on one hand they're using the cameras to, you know, keep tabs on you and try to get you in trouble. But at the same time, you're using your camera to, re- so to, to show the world the what's happening. Yeah. Um, you know, can you speak to how you guys felt about the power of the camera when you were there? And, you know, what you were hoping, like, were you hoping that the world would watch it? And... Yeah, yeah, I wanted to, I mean, that, that's the whole thing, was to show what they were really doing. I mean, that's that's the power of the camera, right? That's what we have. And it's like so many people had just their their cell phones and were live feeding. And, like, yeah, that was, it was definitely a powerful tool in getting the the message out. I mean, I, I was there the whole time in camp, so I never really had internet or... So I wasn't like really on Facebook or anything. Like I, I know there was stuff being posted everywhere, but somebody like Ginger, who was back and forth, I, I, I'm sure she can talk on this a little bit, just about right. the kind of stuff she's seen on social media. I mean, the reason I went out there was because I saw things on social media. I mean, that's that's how the world found out about Standing Rock. It was, you know, everyone was posting from there. People were checking in, and it was this thing of I just remember on Thanksgiving seeing the pictures of the water cannons, and then seeing that like iconic picture of the man on the horse in front of like crazy amount of military police. And like we'd heard Standing Rock just from friends and things like that, but those images are what made a lot of us go out there. I mean, those images are why 10,000 people showed up there, because for what four months? I mean, they were there since April. Like it was completely an indigenous uprising, and like. We only heard about it four months in, and that's when a lot of non-natives started to trickle in, just being like, how the hell is this happening where we are right now? You know, I'd never even been to North Dakota. I didn't even know where North Dakota was. And just going there and just starting to see what was going on. And it was funny, too, because even being there and seeing how media really wasn't allowed outside of, I think, like December 4th when they announced the fake easement, you know, that was completely overturned media wasn't allowed. Like when we were there at Camp Evictions, there were all these BS rules about if you didn't have this kind of press pass and that kind of press pass, you're not allowed in. So when all the violence was going on, everything was going on, the only people that were allowed were like Morton County press. And it was just like, you know what was going out from there. You know, it was like, oh, the protesters are burning stuff down. They're polluting. And it's like, what was going on there was girls were being arrested and putting, like, stripped down, being put in dog kennels and freezing temperatures for 12 hours at a time. Like, people were having their arms broken. A woman lost her eye. I mean, I knew a 20-year-old kid who was, like, shot point blank with a frozen rubber bullet and his leg was damaged, you know? And you don't hear things like that outside because from the outside, it's like these crazy protesters, you know, are burning stuff up and none of it was true. So... I think the power of social media, the power of cameras were really, really important to get the word out. And by the end, they were basically arresting people for inciting a riot if they were Facebook feeding live, which is insane when you talk about the freedom of speech, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, what? it's such an interesting time because, like, we're living in this moment where, like, terms like fake news and alternative facts. <laughs> and so it's like what people are seeing, people are a little bit more savvy, a little yeah. more cynical. And I don't know if that's for the best or or what, but that's kind of just a thing, you know, how, when you were releasing clips, especially as Standing Rock was happening, you know, were you aware of that? Was that some kind of conscious thing? Like, how do I put this out so people know this is really what's happening and not what they're reporting from the morning? That was definitely a a conscious thing. I think that was on everybody's minds. And that's why everybody out there had their cell phone out. (laughs) I mean, everybody. And you're just furious. I mean, like when you're seeing stuff like this, like I've Again, I find myself an educated person. Like, I was blown away. Even coming back, back and forth and telling my friends in L.A. about the surveillance, the fact that our cars would be searched every day. People were pulled aside and arrested. You wouldn't know where they were. 
it's not legal, you know? And you'd tell your friends, and like, come on, that's that's not real. So just even getting that kind of stuff out. And, you know, we were using other people, like Sean King has a huge following, Women's March. Like, we were posting through them just to get the word out because in many of the places, like, our internet would go down. So there's just one place on Facebook Hill where your internet would work. And trying to constantly release stuff that we were seeing, you know, like the last day before camp eviction, they arrested a journalist and, like, broke his leg. Like, the amount of violence that was going on, you'd see one unarmed person and 20 military cops coming at him completely armed and you're going what the hell is this one person going to do and what kind of violence is this especially when people are sitting in prayer and they're trying to stop a pipeline from destroying 17 million people's water there are children at camp there are women at camp and this kind of bloody violence that's coming at them is unreal you know and the pictures that were going out of oh it's these crazy people doing these things and violent men it's like there were children and women at camp it was it was unbelievable the all-new VideoMic Pro Plus from Rode Microphones is jam-packed with useful features for shooters on the go. The automatic power function is perfect for the run-and-gun shooter, automatically turning the microphone off when unplugged from the camera. The mic's built-in battery door makes replacing the battery a breeze, plus it won't get lost. It has multiple power options, including the all-new and Rode LB1 lithium-ion rechargeable battery, two AA batteries, or powering continuously via micro USB. The VideoMic Pro Plus also offers digital switching, which ensures that you have ultimate capture of the audio signal at the source, reducing post-production and editing times. Finally, the high-frequency boost will boost high frequencies, enhancing detail and clarity in the recording. And a safety channel helps ensure that the signal does not clip when unexpected spikes occur. That's the all-new VideoMic Pro Plus from Rode Microphones. The, the title of the film, the first word, Akichita, Akichita. Akichita. I mean, that means warrior it means or protector or protector. Defender. defender. And it was it was a warrior society among the Lakota nation. They had many different kinds of warrior societies. Yeah. And so it's interesting to me because when I watch the film, um, even though there is this back and forth between the people at the camps deciding what to do, still throughout the whole thing, it's a non-violent. There's civil disobedience. People cementing themselves to things, but there's no violence coming from one side, only the other side. Was there ever a point, I mean, when you're filming, you know, were you, you're there, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, were you prepared for, for if violence had to come? You know, it didn't, but is that something you had to be prepared for? Violence, violence always came every, every single time out on the front line. Yeah. And and you, you, you should be prepared for if you're going to be out there. Um, I mean, oftentimes I would I would set my camera down to 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 help to to grab somebody who got shot or got maced and pull them out, or to help to build a barricade, you know, to bring the logs and set it up. And yeah, yeah so th- th- it was sometimes you had to choose between you know, can I film right now or should I just set the camera down and help? Hmm. <clears throat> and I get, I guess kind of what I meant is from the protest side and the water protectors. You know, it's a the discipline to not just go all out and get oh. into a riot in the face of, you know, I mean, that's a lot of just, dis- yeah, that's so that, that, yeah, that crosses your mind all the time. I, I mean, it would mostly result in shouting some cuss word or something just like screaming because you want to just go up and just grab their head and rip it off. And you can't, you can't grab a brick and throw it right in their face. Like, like these were like rules set down. This was nonviolent direct action, you know, we had we had we had to stay peaceful. We had to stay in prayer, and you know, the hopes was that it would turn some of them, that they would look at us, 
and they would see us there in prayer and in peace, and then they would hurt us, and we we would hope that it would affect some of them. And it did affect some of them. There was there was many police who actually dropped their badges and turned their turned their badges in and quit off of the the, the force. Really? Um, yeah, absolutely. Right, right out there on the um, front line. Um, so it was impactful. Was it as impactful as much as we wanted? No, because these these people are you know a lot of them are just robots. You know. Do you feel like the camera has a power? to make people act in a better way? Maybe not on, maybe not so much on the other side. Well, maybe on well, the that, side you were filming from, like, does that help people? Like, I am being, like, this whatever I choose to do is someone's capturing and someone's going to see, so I better act in my best way. <laughs> I, I think the camera has that effect on everybody <laughs> in any sort of situation. Um, I, th I think what we had hoped for that to have an effect on the other side didn't wasn't as strong as, as we would have wanted as, as we would have liked it yeah but i wonder too because on on the side of the protesters too it's like were people really even aware of cameras because i mean everyone was filming all the time i mean like you knew that you were on cell phone footage somewhere they were filming on that side the whole time so it's like after a while like i i feel like i'm aware of cameras because i'm like i'm an entertainer and like i was so unaware after a while because Everyone is filming everything. I'm filming everything. You're filming on some medium, right? So, like, are you even aware anyone's filming you anymore? I'm pretty sure a lot of the water protectors were. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure some of the heroic acts that were caught on camera were. I don't really want to say that, but. Yeah, yeah. but it's like you, you have something to say and you want, you're like, this is what I'm standing for. You know, it's yeah. like. If it can be on camera that someone can see it, you know, it just can go that much further. Sure. So I'm sure it's like, yeah. you know. But in the chaos, I highly doubt it. Like, I mean, the stuff that you capture and all the chaos, I like, people are so in it. I don't know if they're, like, aware yeah. of anyone filming them I, around. It's so intense, so. you know? What was the process like then turning all the footage you had, which some of it had been released as you went, but now you turn and you want to make it into a feature? What was the process? You know, what did you want to do differently that you knew you could do in the space of a feature? that would be a different, you know, kind of story. What are, what did I want to do as far as, is, is like, what kind of story did I want to tell? Is that the question or what? I don't know what the question is. Um, <laughs> no, no, I mean, okay, yeah. In so, so, so I just talk. Um, in term, I guess like my question is you have all this footage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's so hard so, that you shoot all this stuff and you're like, where, you know, what do I, what'd you do at that point? So we were just talking about this the other day. So we were, the, I was definitely at the mercy of the story instead of like the other way around. It wasn't like I could, say, okay, we're gonna shoot this, this, that, and that, and then it's gonna connect like this, that, that, and that, and it's gonna be a great storyline. Like, whenever I planned anything like that, it just never happened, because you couldn't really get in contact with people at camp. Most of the time, you did not have have cell reception, so maybe maybe you would have cell reception for a second, and you, and, and you would contact somebody, and you would say, okay, it's me over at blah, blah, blah camp, and we'll go from there, and we'll go film some Verite stuff, and we'll go out and do this or that, and be like, yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. And then one of us, either them or me, like, would never be there. Like, like, like this was really <laughs> rare that you could do this. So then you would go over looking for them. You would go to their camp, because you know where they stay. And oftentimes, they're not there. They're out visiting some relatives, and camp was huge, and so, it was very difficult to plan anything, and um, also in the in the filmmaking process, um, you know, it was it was it was really hard to film the characters that I wanted to film. 
because there's, you know, I mean, there was a, a lot of people that just came there to camp, that just came there, it's sort of like this Burning Man type thing, just to come there and camp and hang out and say they were there, um, and, you know, not actually contribute to stopping the Dakota Access Pipeline. It just came this thing to come and camp, um, which was special in its own way, too, especially for, for natives who needed to get reconnected with their roots or or to get reconnected with other um, tribes, you know, um, just making new relatives also. But um, the characters that I wanted to follow were the ones who were actually actively fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline. I didn't want to follow any of these campers, you know, that just came to camp. Um, to me, their story wasn't that interesting, you know. Um, and so these specific characters that I wanted to follow, they were probably really under surveillance, you know what I mean? And, you know, they were planning planning, you know, in the war rooms, pouring over maps and going out and scouting, locking down new equipment and things like that. And so that was really difficult to be able to be able to film them because first of all, they don't, you know, if if I get pulled over with footage that I have of them doing stuff, then that could incriminate them. They could get in trouble. That was that, that was one part of it. The other part of it was they don't want their comrades to see them with the camera in their face walking all around camp. That's like <laughs> You know what I mean? That's the, the, the in this high security culture camp, like <clears throat> that was not okay. <clears throat> so that was that that was that was a whole whole another process that we had to somehow break the barrier of that over over the course of the eight months, you know. Um, so then when we finally got all the footage together, it was like holy crap, we got like over 1,200 hours of footage. And it was like, geez, you know? And then all these other filmmakers out there who were non-native filmmakers, a bunch of them gave us their footage. And we're like, we want, we want to support the one native project from out there because it's been a pretty big conversation right now as far as natives taking back control of their own narrative, you know? It's a pretty big conversation. And so that has sort of spread around a little bit. And some of the non-native filmmakers there felt, you know, kind of unwelcome from time to time there. And so some of them, you know, kind of woke up and were like, oh, shit, this isn't our story to tell. If there's a native film crew out here, we need to support them. And so I kind of stopped counting how many hours, around 1,200 hours, so somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 probably. Um, and we've been cutting for five months, and we somehow got it down to two hours. Um, <laughs> What we're showing here at Sundance is a, is a work in progress. Um, when I first sat down with the footage um, and tried to think of how we can possibly um, do this, just even start, like, like so we had, this, we had this big timeline in the, in the garage where I work on the, on, on the wall, and it, and it kind of went through the whole timeline of the occupation, all the major things that happened, like the major pillars of, of the story. And so that's how we decided to attack it, was to go to these major pillars of the story, these major actions or things that happened, and start roughing all those cuts out in chronological order. And that was kind of how we started to attack it. And I hired two other, uh, other editors, um, so it was me and two other editors just cracking away at a day and night, 20-hour days, um, because we really wanted to make it to, to, to Sundance. Um, so after we kind of fleshed out, r roughed out all of the main pillars, I mean, it's, oh, okay, now we got to find some glue to go in between these, which is our character arcs. So find the characters, find the verite stuff, um, and sort of spread it in between there and how it connects to these major pillars of the story. And originally we started off with about 25 main characters, and we boiled it down to a good five main characters now. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. hard. 
Yeah, and so after we sort of started piecing it all together, then it was time to go do the master interviews. And so then we went and did follow-ups with our main characters in their homes where they, where they were to sort of reflect on everything. Um, yeah, and sort of connect everything together. So that's kind of how some of that process went. Was there anything that you learned when you went to reconnect and do the master interviews that you didn't realize was going on in somebody's mind at the time? Or like how illuminating were, were those? Sure. I mean, I think, yeah, that, ha that still happens even when I go dip into the footage. It's like, oh, man. Um, yeah, everything's connected. It's, it's really one of those projects where everything is connected. And it's incredible. The, the, the more that you dig deep into the footage, the more connections you find. Um, and I'm sure we'll be working on it for another couple months and finding tons of more connections. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and Ginger, so I know, you know, you're, you're the producer on this film, but you're, you, you're well known for your music and I noticed that you did work on the comp as a composer. Can you speak to that part of the process and how you, <laughs> you know, when you came on and how you, how you helped in that front? It, well, it's been an interesting relationship with Cody because as, as uh, one of the producers, I get to boss him around and lock him in a garage for 20 hours a day. And then when it flips to the composer director role, it completely <laughs> switches. So that's been really fun. Um, <laughs> but I mean, his shooting style is so incredible. And part of it is, you know, as a musician, when you're inspired by images like that, he shoots, like when you see this film, you you forget that it's a documentary. It looks like a narrative film to me. It looks like this crazy cinematic war epic. And to score to something like that is so inspiring for me, you know, and especially being there and so much of the score from the beginning, what he wanted is, he's he's has a very musical brain. So when he was at camp, like so much of what was going on at camp was while a direct action was going on, people were at camp in prayer and a lot of the prayer is song. So he recorded so many songs at camp from different, different water protectors, elders, the young kids. And so when he told me, he's like, hey, you know, I've recorded, you know, 200 songs here, listen to them. And that's extraordinary just to know what the sounds of camp were, you know, and we're still working on it again. Like he said, the film is a work in progress and we have a little more editing to do and everything. But, um, but even the musical part, like everything in the film, we're using sounds from camp. And that's into the score, whether it's the sound of the fire, whether it's the sound of everything. There's always drums in the background when people are talking because people are always in, you know, singing and drumming. And so that's a huge part of the soundscape of the film. And as we keep going, that's going to be everything you hear is from camp, whether it's a helicopter slowed down in a drone or... So that's, that's a very musical side of him. And it's exciting because he cuts musically. So it's been a fun experience to kind of work on that side of just someone who can immediately hear something and go that's not working, and you go, why isn't it working? And, and he hits it, and you go, oh my God, you're right. Like, he's cut it this way, and it makes sense. So it's been, it's been really fun to work on it in that way. So it's been, it's been fun to have, like, both relationships. <laughs> fun and, yeah, yeah. Challenging. challenging at the same time. Because <laughs> I'm also the one that gets to tell him, you have to go sit for another 20 hours in this edit mm -hmm. today. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's always a fun conversation. <laughs> Great. Well, I think maybe the last thing I'll ask you both is, you know, especially for filmmakers, somebody maybe sees a story that they want to tell that's happening on the ground and they want to put it into something meaningful. What's your advice for them based on what you learned working on this film? Just dive in. Don't give up. Earn the respect that you need to, you, you need to earn. Do, it, do what you need to do. Um, learn as quickly as possible the um, code, of, code of conduct. Um, yeah, and be respectful, you know, and um, whatever, wh whatever you're doing and whatever you're there for, it should be ultimately to, 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 to help, 
you know, not for your own personal gain. Um, this has probably just flipped my life completely upside down. I never wanted this. Like, I cannot wait for it to be done, honestly. Um, and I think just going, go, going with a good heart, be respectful, never give up, and don't, don't be afraid. And, 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 and don't be afraid to ask and uh, talk to people for permission and let them know what you want to do, and then they'll end up helping you, you know? I mean, I can say more, more like rather than a filmmaker, I can speak to just kind of getting involved with things like this. It's just like people have this idea, especially being in places that, you know, you, you don't have to deal with this until it hits your own home of just get involved, even in your own community. Like one person makes a huge difference and seeing something like this, it's like each person that came there that had different backgrounds, that had no idea what was going on, 10,000 people showed up to stop a pipeline in this country. That's extraordinary. You know, and what that's going to do, like just in this indigenous movement, all these activists that came together that have been fighting in their own communities for years and years and years that didn't know they had help, that didn't know they had connection and they're there and they go, you're dealing with the same thing I am. And even our water protectors that are here, you know, they went from there to line three and they're fighting there. One of our main characters, Kana Hoos, is fighting the Kinder Morgan pipeline in BC. She's been on her own and like... The work that these people are doing for our water, for I mean, it is so inspiring. And you realize when you get there, you're like, every one of us, no matter what you can do, whether you're tweeting about it, whether you can go there and help cook, whether you can tell your friends to donate some money, do it, you know? Because I know we all feel so overwhelmed with what's going on right now and the government and everything. And it's just like, there's hopeless days for all of us. You open the news and you're like, the world is over. We can all do something. Do something. That's it. Just do something. Oh. Well, that's beautiful. Um, thank you guys, Cody, Ginger. It's been awesome talking to you, and I'm really excited for the film to get out into the world. So thanks for coming to talk to us today. So, so it's, it's, it's so awesome to be on here. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And thank you for the coffee. <laughs> <Heck> yeah. <laughs> this is Oakley Anderson Moore. Thanks for listening to the No Film School podcast. Stay tuned for Indie Film Weekly this Thursday. And last but not least, subscribe to the podcast on any podcast platform you like.